Hello everybody. It is the end of my work week, so that means it's time for you to join me on the Homeward Path. This is the show that I record in my vehicle on the way home from work at the end of the work week. And my name is Adam. I'm a husband, father of three, work a full-time job, and listen, magic's tough. It takes a lot of time and a lot of money, and if you're like me and don't have a lot of either one of those things because other responsibilities come first, then you should probably stay tuned because I'm here to try to show you how I am seeking improvement at Magic under difficult time and financial constraints. But before we get started, I need to remind you that I'm a part of the Constructed Criticism Network of Shows. If you haven't checked out the other content on the network, it is fantastic, and you are doing yourself a disservice by not doing so. Uh, We bid a hopefully temporary farewell to the Arena Mythic cast, but Spencer returns, makes a glorious return to the flagship Constructed Criticism show. Uh, We've got Common Knowledge with Brad and Christian, and we've got... Sam Black, one of the icons, one of the legends of Magic the Gathering, with his insights unlimited. So we've got something for everybody. Out of the group, I'm probably the most casual, and I'm kind of trying to lay into that, embrace that, lean into it a little bit more. But check out the network, and don't forget to check out our sponsors, which I'll read off at the beginning of each segment. How's it going, everybody? I hope you've all had a good week in between episodes. And it is a kind of disgusting, rainy Saturday. So let's get this thing on the road. We're going to kick things off with our regular beginning segment, Budget Spotlight. Budget Spotlight is where we're spotlighting an uncommon, a rare, a mythic, and a card with commander in mind that I feel like are not getting the due they deserve, whether it's from a financial standpoint, they're cheaper than I think they probably should be or will be, or because they just don't get as much play as I feel like the power level dictates. And this segment is brought to you by our sponsorship from puremtgo.com and their sponsor, MTGO Traders. If you're looking for magic content, I don't care what it is, what format, what deck you're trying to find stuff on they've got resources they've got resources for days so if you're looking for if you're looking for new magic content to consume get over there and check it out if you like me are playing mtgo and would like access to you know get to keep my cards and do whatever i want with them the best place to get them is mtgo traders and i I don't just say that because they're a sponsor i say that because I used them the first time around. I'm a, I'm a big fan of the service. They are fast, efficient. I've never had any issues with them. Just highly recommend MTGO Traders. So with the, the shell out of the way, let's dive into the segment. Our uncommon for this week is Test of Talents from Strixhaven. It is one in a blue counter target instant or sorcery spell. Then search its controller's hand library and graveyard for additional copies exile those cards and then your opponent draws a card for each copy that was in their hand so 
for those of you who don't know, Standard right now feels like it is very heavily defined by Allrin's Epiphany. I don't, that's, that's not a stretch, that's not a hot take. Allrin's Epiphany is the top end of the format, it is the way you win games. And with that in mind, specifically one of the ways you win with Epiphany is to just draw a couple of them. You play your first one, you get two tokens, you take an extra turn, you play the second one, you get two more tokens, attack for two, take an extra turn, and so on. To the point that there's, you know, a, a deck, a variation of the deck now that is just not even messing around with any of the other stuff. It's just playing epiphany and copy spells and it plans to kill you with bird tokens and test of talents is one of the cleanest outs to chaining Ulrin's epiphanies that exists in the standard format because you counter the first one and you get the rest of them so the dedicated epiphany deck just actually can't kill you unless they get you know, unless they cast the Epiphany as part of their combo turn in which they played a couple of copy spells with it. But if that wasn't what they did, they're probably not going to be able to kill you. It's like Hall of the Storm Giants Tribal. Let's go try our best. It's also monster sideboard tech in the format, in particular due to the fact that we have a lot of treasures in the format, so you can splash it as an off-color card after sideboarding. And you've got access to lessons, uh, or specifically you've got access to learn cards that allow you to add environmental sciences from your deck to your hand, which can then go get you an island in order to leave this up in a deck that otherwise couldn't. You've also got access to blue mana as a splash through Binding of the Old Gods, which will put a forest from your deck into play tapped. And we've got a non-basic forest in the format right now, in the form of Rhymewood Falls, that does the job pretty admirably. So all of that, and this card is 50 cents in paper and a penny on Magic Online. Penny for my thoughts, I just gave them to you. That's, that's phenomenal. So moving on to our rare, we have Smoldering Egg. This one is from Innistrad Midnight Hunt. It is one and a red for a zero four. Whenever you cast an instant or sorcery spell, you put a number of, I can't remember the name of the counter, but you put a number of counters on it equal to the amount of mana spent to cast that spell. And then if, the, if this creature has seven or more counters on it, transform it and it transforms into a 4-4 dragon that says whenever you cast an instant or sorcery spell get a free shock deal two damage to any target so on its on its surface it is strictly worse than thing in the ice right because thing in the ice just wanted you to cast four spells and didn't care how much mana you spent on them but it's playable in a wider a wider array of decks and it has synergy with things like kicker a really good example is playing it in standard if you wanted to play a Rakdos mid-range deck you can play it alongside cards like uh, Blood Chief's Thirst 
and Skull Raid and like cards that are that can be made cheaper or can be made more expensive. In the case of Blood Chief's Thirst, you know, at one mana, if you're just trading for a two drop, well, that only puts one counter on it. That doesn't get you very far. But once you kick the Blood Chief's Thirst, that's over halfway there because you spent four mana on the spell. Same goes for something like Inscription of Ruin. If you kick Inscription of Ruin, you just flip the thing. That's really strong. Also not for nothing, it only requires a single red mana, which means it's splashable. If you're playing a mostly blue deck with a bunch of cantrips and bounce spells, you know, cards like Into the Royal, you can splash this in pretty easily. Uh, between Frostbowl, Snarl, uh, Riverglide Pathways, uh, Volatile Fjord and in blue-red you get access to treasures as well you've still got Divide by Zero into Environmental Sciences like there's, there's a lot there and that makes it easy enough to splash this card into decks that maybe shouldn't have access to it the mono black control deck comes to mind as an interesting place for it. And this is another one of those cards I look at and I'm like, why are you so cheap? It is $1 in paper and 70 cents on Magic Online. Come on. That's ridiculous. Moving on to our mythic, we have Extus, Auric Overlord, and it's flip side awaken the blood avatar and I, I make mention of the the flip side on this one because you are playing these two cards for very different reasons Extus is one a white and double black two four legendary creature human cleric I believe and has magecraft that whenever you cast or copy an instant or sorcery you can return a creature from your graveyard to your hand On the other side, Awaken the Blood Avatar is six, a black and a red. As you cast this spell, you can sacrifice any number of creatures. As an additional cost to cast the spell, you can sacrifice any number of creatures. If you do, this card costs two less to cast for each creature. Sacrifice. So by sacrificing three creatures, it becomes a two mana spell. Makes your opponent sacrifice a creature. and creates a 3-6 blood avatar creature token with haste that says whenever it attacks, your opponent takes three damage. So it's an odd card to evaluate because it's a payoff for two wildly disparate archetypes. The front half wants you to play a bunch of creatures or wants you to play some small creatures that you can buy back reliably and a bunch of cheap instants and sorceries in order to facilitate sort of looping them. The back half wants you to use cards like Claim the Firstborn and other threaten effects to take your opponent's creatures for the turn in order to eat them and 
make a 3-6, make them lose more creatures. The interesting thing about this card, and as it relates to the standard format and commander even, I guess more so to standard than it's it, it's all about standard. Let's not get ourselves. Uh, both sides are splashable within the framework of the green-black token stack that I've profiled on the channel before. Because you only need one white mana to cast Exodus, and you only need one red mana to cast Awaken the Blood Avatar. And you've got access in standard to Prosperous Innkeeper, Skullport Merchant, Deadly Dispute, all of which make treasure tokens, which gives you an off-color mana source. You've also got in green and green-black access to Binding of the Old Gods, which will let you go get the snow duel that will help you cast one after the other. And you've got access through Hunt for Specimens for Environmental Sciences, which can go grab you an off-color basic. So there's not a good reason, if you're thinking about this card, that you shouldn't play it. They also add a, a layer of sort of unpredictability to the deck because, you know, your opponent could think, ah, I'm safe at... I'm safe here at uh, three life behind my one big blocker. You know, Sedgemore Witch and two tokens aren't going to do a whole lot. And then you just awaken the blood avatar, sacrifice my three creatures. You sacrifice your one, attack you for six. All of a sudden, the game's a whole lot different. So the price tag on Exodus is surprising, too, because quite frankly, cards that cards in black-white that enable you to touch on red, Mardu as a color combination and Commander are generally pretty high value. And I guess that's sort of borne out in its Magic Online price. But paper price, this card's $2.50. The regular copy on Magic Online is $8.50, but the promo version is $2.50. So... If you avoid the original Strixhaven, it's not that bad. And last but not least, we have our commander card, Archangel Avison. Now, the, if you haven't guessed already, the theme of the week is splashing colors. And that is obviously hard to do in commander because of how commander's rules work. Archangel Avison is three white, white, four, four, flash flying. When she enters the battlefield, creatures you control gain indestructible until end of turn. And then when at the beginning of your end step, if a creature died under your control this turn, transform Archangel Avison. She transforms into Avison the Purifier, deals three damage to each creature without flying when she transforms and is a 6-5. And red, notably. Flash, flying, Powerful enter the battlefield, make this iconic magic character a force to be reckoned with. I know she doesn't have the, the icon, iconography of being able to play her with Armageddon and Commander that most people do with Avison Archangel of Hope. Or Avison Angel of Hope. But, as a utility spell, she's asking you to play a different kind of deck. Regular Avison wants you to play board wipes. Cards like World Slayer, cards like 
Armageddon. Cards that will get you killed by your table very quickly if they know you have access to them. Archangel Avison's a little different. She just wants to protect what's yours against exactly what's trying to be done to it. And not for nothing, she allows you to pick up red in your Angel Tribal decks. If you don't want to go all the way into Kalia the Vast or the, the newer Kalia that I can't remember the name of, if you don't want to go all the way into three colors and you want to stay red-white, but you don't want to play Feather or Aurelia as a commander, you can do a lot worse than Archangel Avison. And also, not for nothing, having Flash makes her more unpredictable as to when she's going to come down, who she's going to be attacking, whose plan she's going to thwart. Kind of, ironically, more like the real character. And that price tag on Archangel Avison in paper is $8. It's 15 cents on Magic Online. Go get it. Just, just go get it. So that's going to wrap up Budget Spotlight. Let's move on to our second segment, Brew of the Week, where we cover a deck in a format that I feel like either doesn't get a lot of love or has just got a lot of interesting, unexplored design space to it. It's either, it's either got more potential than we think, or it's already got a lot of potential, but there's a lot of room to grow and expand. And this segment is brought to you by our affiliate program through Grey Viking Games. If you, like me, play Magic Arena, and try to do so as much as possible on a free-to-play budget, but you find yourself desperately needing wild cards, or you just really can't stand to look at the, the regular Magic card back one more day on that app. Grey Viking Games has got arena consumable codes for ridiculously cheap prices. You can get a pre-release pre pack with six boosters for arena for $7. That is less than a third of the price of going to a pre-release to get one. That is, you, you're essentially paying $7 for a wild card and getting a bunch of free packs along the way. You can do a lot worse than that. So, let's dive in. The brew of the week this week is Mono Black Control and Standard. And look, I don't have to tell y'all what this deck does. Everybody knows what Mono Black Control does. As a, as a general rule. But I wrote some notes about it anyway. It's one of Standard 22's stalwart decks. It was really heavily played in the Standard 2022 format. Uh, cards like Shambling Ghast, Deadly Dispute, Skullport Merchant, and then you'd play Blood on the Snow, uh, other various sweepers, spot removal, and then the engine that keeps you going is Skullport Merchant and Deadly Dispute. So you marry efficient spot removal spells and powerful sweepers against creature decks, and then you sideboard into disruption when you're playing against control. That is your general overarching game plan. 
you absolutely refuse to lose to creature decks in game one, and you want to make it as difficult for your opponent to win as possible in game one if they are on control, because you've got so much removal that it doesn't matter. The way this deck is built right now for standard is a direct response to the direction of the format, in particular the rise of mono green aggro and uh, Boros and green white and sort of all of these big dumb creature decks that have come out of the woodworks because they can play Ren and Seven and Eskis Chariot. And because we're all tired of losing Goldspan Dragon. Now, again, decks like these always need a draw engine because, again, you're playing mostly one-for-one -one trades. It's hard to pull ahead that way. But Skullport Merchant and Deadly Dispute do a reasonable job of keeping you ahead. Notably, you know, your Shambling Gas trades with their 2-1, their leaves behind a treasure. You sack that treasure for Deadly Dispute. You didn't lose anything to draw two cards. You functionally traded one card to draw two that's okay. At instant speed especially, and then it leaves behind another treasure for either another copy of itself or Skullport Merchant to eat to draw cards later. Just fantastic little micro-engine that fits into the deck. From a customization standpoint, thanks to treasures, you've got access to a plethora of splash options. From off-color lessons to powerful sideboard cards, we just talked about one of them in Test of Talents. If you're playing mono-black against the Epiphany decks and you, you get to go to sideboard, you go to game two, and you board into Test of Talents with as many treasures as your deck makes. Come on now. <sighs> They'll never see it coming. They won't even have saw it coming in suspense. Or foretell because they don't know you've got counter spells. They don't know they need to play around. Devour Intellect is also a card I'm really high on because, again, we've got all these treasures that we make between Skullport Merchants, Shambling Ghasts, Deadly Disputes, and a really good example of how to use them is to try to get maximum value out of it right away. So if you Skullport Merchant into a treasure and then you sacrifice the treasure to cast Devour Intellect, you just got a pain-free Thought Seize because you played Skullport Merchant. Like, that's really strong right now. Even if you're playing against something like... Like, if you're playing against the Epiphany deck, you take their first Epiphany, which gives you time to find Test of Talents. If you're... Or, you know time to find a way to win the game if you're in game one. If you're playing against creature decks, it gives you a way to take the creature you can't otherwise deal with, or take the chariot, or the Renin 7. All the way around, I think it's, it's a card that does not get the respect that it's due. Strengths and weaknesses. Strength, you're not letting anyone take easy wins off of you. You're grinding everybody. That is what you are here to do. That is the life you chose to live by playing this deck. Every game is going to be a grind. Nobody's going to get anything cheap. But on the flip side of that, that strength is also a weakness. 
because you also don't get quick wins without a concession. You're just, the deck is not equipped to win in a hurry. You win a lot of games with Hive of the Eye Tyrant or Professor Onyx or a Loth that comes back from Blood in the Snow. You don't win a lot of games by just jamming a big dumb win condition and riding it. Nothing happens quick, you don't get anything easy. Just like you don't give anything easy, you don't get anything easy. So if there's a weakness to the deck, it's you are capable of putting forth disruption but not the clock to go with it when you're playing against decks that don't care about all your removal. So from an outlook perspective, it feels like this archetype is always heavily played, mono black control, I mean, even when it's not especially viable. That said, this iteration is a lot more fundamentally sound between having a, a leaner mana curve overall. You know, you are, you are doing things through the early game. You're not just playing spells and killing creatures until you get to Mind Sludge to rip your opponent's hand apart. You are playing spells. You're playing Shambling Gas to trade early. You've got Skullport Merchant to soak up some violence on the ground. You've got crippling fear to clean up small swarms of creatures, and then you've got Shadow's Verdict if they play bigger creatures. Shadow's Verdict and Blood in the Snow, I should specify. So, being a little bit more of a fundamentally sound deck and having a, a better, more balanced mana curve makes this one of the few iterations that I might actually consider picking up for Mono Black. I just, I like incremental value, I can't help it. I like small pluses and I cannot lie. <laughs> so, that's going to wrap up Brew of the Week. So, let's dive into the main topic for the week. Main topic is made possible by support from the network at constructedcriticism.com and patrons of the show. Let's move in. We're talking about splashing colors. Splashing a color offers a high-risk, high-reward proposition to a deck, but it's important to ask the right questions when you're thinking about it. Question one, why do I want to splash? Why do we want to splash? We should only be looking to splash a color for two reasons. We're either raising our power ceiling or lowering our opponents. When I say that, I mean raising our power ceiling is killing the opponent faster or establishing a stronger form of inevitability, a stronger endgame. So you're either killing them faster or more definitively making it where they can't win. Lowering their ceiling is about cutting off key swing turns, with, i.e. splashing for a clean answer to Goldspan Dragon or getting you away to allow what your opponent's doing to not dominate you. Like splashing for escape cards during uh, Rogue's time and standard. You're, you're splashing with the intention of getting something really valuable out of it. It's really important to note that. Question two, 
How easily can I splash? And this is where things get a little bit muddy. Because the first question you have to ask yourself after saying, how easily can I splash? What are the mana bases like in the format? How reliable are they? Standard right now is weird because the actual mana bases are kind of clunky. We've got a lot of, we got a lot of dual lands in the format, but 10 of them only make one color or the other, not both. I would say, by and large, that has been a relatively positive gaming experience from Standard. I love the Pathway Lands, but I understand the frustration, too. How reliably can I find what I'm splashing for? Does my deck do a good job digging to specific cards? If it doesn't, that's probably not worth splashing for. Is there a unique way to access off-color mana? And that's where a format like the current standard makes things really interesting because we've got the treasure tokens, we've got environmental sciences, we've got binding of the old gods, we've got uh, other various ramp spells that can go grab off-color basics. How feasible are these things? Another really good example is splashing a fourth color for a card in Modern, or splashing a third color for a card in Modern. It is really easy to do because you get access to fetches. So it doesn't take a lot to play a, a duel that you can otherwise fetch with any of your fetches that you're playing. That also happens to give you access to another color, or splashing a Triome for that same benefit. That's a feasible option. On balance, playing uh, playing four copies of Spire Bluff Canal and four copies of Steam Vents in your otherwise mono-red prowess deck to try to splash cantrips, that's a lot of work. For not a lot of not a lot of benefit. Chad. There, there's, there's a story that I have to share it. It was a meme that circulated around because we managed to get a picture of him in the moment while he was doing it. In which the question was, was, was asked to the room, hey, how many islands do I need to play in my deck if I'm splashing a third color for one card? And we took that, we took we took that and turned it into a proxy of Ponder, because that's the card he was trying to splash. And it was just so perfect because he was sitting in the chair super deep in thought, thinking about like how he was gonna do this. It was just, you know, time has made made us made him correct because, you know, Ponder is one of those cards, if you can play it, you probably want to. But at the time, it was just laughable. So, moving on, question number three has the kind of the largest subset of questions here. That's kind of why we breeze through the first two. Question number three, what am I splashing for? Again, 
why do I want to splash and what specifically am I splashing for two different things? Why do I want to splash could be I'm having trouble with creatures or I'm having trouble with Alrun's Epiphany or I'm having trouble with uh, Croxa in Pioneer or Historic or I'm tired of losing to, to Mill or whatever. What am I splashing for is the specific cards you're looking for. But it falls under the category of the things you ask for, why am I splashing? Raising my ceiling, there's a, a subset here. You can splash for more powerful and efficient threats. A really good example is splashing uh, Clever Lumamancer and Leon and Lightscribe into the Mono Red Prowess deck in Pioneer. It's not a perfectly free splash, but it's not as bad as it might otherwise have been. You get access to Sacred Foundry, uh, Needle Verge Pathway, and uh, Inspiring Vantage, and Battlefield Forge. You get 16 dual lands without even touching on Clifftop Retreat, you know, without adding that layer of awkward inconsistency into your deck. So, the splash is relatively free, but you also pick up the higher power level of being able to play Clever Lumamancer instead of just Swift Spear and Soul Scar Mage. You add an additional one drop, which helps lower your overall curve and gives you access to Luris's Companion, which also gives you inevitability. You also get Boros Charm. You also get a lot of stuff, but I digress. More powerful, more efficient threats. You can also get an engine that boosts power or adds inevitability. A really good example of this is the cycling deck in Standard last year. Cycling was, when it first came out and for most of the year that came after, even though all the cards were legal at the same time, it was largely a deck that operated as a red-white all-in linear aggro deck with Zenith Flare as a big payoff. You were going to kill them with Flourishing Fox or Valiant Rescuer, or you were going to kill them with Zenith Flare, and there was no other opportunity to do anything. But then we figured out we could splash blue. We could play Improbable Alliance. We could play Main Deck Neutralize so that we'd have access to a counter spell. And that kind of unlocked the full potential of the deck as an engine deck instead of this sort of all-in linear deck. It made it way more interesting for sure. And just a little bit stronger overall. Just a little bit more versatile, a little bit more meaningful, a little bit easier to pilot, a little bit a little bit more justifiable to take to events. Like just all the way around, it was really good. You can also be fleshing out an engine or theme that you're already playing. A really good example is taking the green-black sacrifice deck or the green-black food deck or the red-black sacrifice deck or red-black food deck and just playing all three colors. You know, Corvald is really good alongside all these sacrifice synergies. Mayhem Devil is the most powerful threat you could splash for in the sacrifice deck. But then you get Trail of Crumbs, which gives you another good benefit to sacrificing stuff. You get, you know, 
it, it becomes a little bit harder to discern what the splash actually is once you get down this road far enough to the point that you are largely just kind of equal parts all three colors but at the end of the day if the deck is stronger it doesn't really much matter you know what's more powerful casting bolus's citadel and the the straight green black version or casting bolus's citadel with a mayhem double on the battlefield one of these kills your opponent right now and it's not the one without the mayhem devil there's also the option to splash to lower your opponent's ceiling and when you're doing that you're splashing for stuff like sweepers because your control deck doesn't have access to them or doesn't have access to good ones a really good example would be starting with blue red and then ending up having to splash a card like extinction event or blood in the snow or what have you You splash for disruption. The the idea we were talking about with Mono Black. You splash blue for test of talents. You splash blue for other counter magic in a in a format where maybe you don't need it all the time, but when you do, you need it bad. It gives you an option. Sometimes it's about finding ways to remove specific permanents that you otherwise can't do. A good example being the lesson, the ability for decks with lessons, or the, the lesson plan to pick up Containment Breach or start from scratch as an out to Essica's Chariot. If you know they're on Chariot and you can touch on off-color mana, basically costs you nothing to play one of these cards in your sideboard. You can sideboard, you can splash for floodgate cards. Really good example is Rest in Peace. Confounding Conundrum to shut off ramp effects. Uh, oh, what is that card's name? Yixlid Jailer in old formats to shut off graveyard effects. Floodgates, you're shutting off the whole thing. Just everything, no, we're not doing it. Interactive elements you otherwise lack in green, splashing black, so that you can actually just kill creatures without needing one on your side of the field. If you're in, you know, red-black, you can't blow up enchantments. can't do it so you might want to touch on white or green in order to get an enchantment destruction spell after sideboarding or before if you're in red green you're going to have a hard time killing big dumb creatures so touch on black or white a few guidelines though it is very very rarely correct to splash for low impact cards. If we're reconfiguring our entire mana to just to facilitate a splash, it better be making a big one. Alright? 
you better be making a big splash with that with that change. Ideally, we want the splash to take up as small a space as possible. If you're not going to make the color a massive component of the deck's identity, like you need that color every game for the you know specific cards that make what your deck does function. If it's going to be a small part of what you do, it needs to take up a small amount of room. Otherwise, it's not a splash. It's just a variation on the deck. You can be a bit less conservative about it when mana is easier to fix. But a general rule for me is I never splash for a card that needs multiple multiple pips of a, of a color. I try to splash for cards that only need me to get a single a single mana of the off color. And then ultimately it comes down to deciding if it's worth the potential inconsistency to play the splash. You know, is it worth my draw engine occasionally being a little worse in mono black control to play test of talents so that I have a clean out to Ulrin's Epiphany? I would say yes. Is it worth playing the fourth color in Teamer Energy for just the Scarab God? Probably not. But when you're playing the fourth color of Teamer Energy, the fourth color in Teamer Energy for the Scarab God, Glint Sleeve Siphoner, uh, becomes a little bit easier to defend. Because now you're raising your power ceiling dramatically. You're getting card draw, you know, you're getting another engine, you're getting a whole lot of bang for the, the mana you're spending. So, with that in mind, that's all I've got for this episode, everybody. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, you got questions, comments, concerns, send them on social media. I'm at Homeward Path MTG on Twitter. You can join the conversation in our Facebook group, the Homeward Pathfinders. You can... Uh, gosh, if you like what we're doing, sorry, kind of spaced out there for a second. If you like what we're doing enough to help me keep doing it, head over to patreon.com slash homewardpathmtg. If you want to get to know the man behind the microphone, follow me on Twitter, on uh, TikTok, at Homeward, uh, Homeward Path Gaming on TikTok. And with that, I leave you for the week because we have not been getting dad joke submissions and I'm really sad. <laughs> so, I leave you with my traditional parting words. Listen, everybody's going through stuff right now. Things are sketchy everywhere. So, when you're dealing with people, please lead with kindness. Remember, always try to be nice, but never fail to be kind. So, laugh hard, splash colors, be kind. We'll catch you next episode, everybody. Be safe.